Welcome, everyone. Highfalutin Ski Bum Podcast, episode number 114. It is your pals, Mario and Brian. Mario, what is up? Everything is up, my man. Uh, it's a great day today. We had a pretty good day. Um, actually got a little talking in the afternoon, and now we're back at night doing the uh, doing the podcast. I think we're we're hitting a home run today. Yeah, we already did our, our main topic interview this, mo- this afternoon, so we're going to just mix that into the old podcast, and you guys won't even realize that it was done at a different time, but we're just breaking down the fourth wall to give you guys some extra information. Um, so stay tuned and prepare for the interview. You guys can check it out later. For all of our information, check us out at skibumpodcast.com. Follow us on social media, twitter.com slash ski bum podcast, instagram.com slash ski bum podcast, facebook.com slash ski bum podcast. We are on Pinterest as the highfalutins. And you can also catch some throwback episodes on SoundCloud, <laughs> soundcloud.com slash highfalutin dash ski bum. Everybody loves that. But see, we got the studio audience going crazy. Yes. And on the the website, we have our new information about how to review us, if you could, on iTunes or Stitcher. All the directions are there. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe and rate us. It would really help us to extend our reach and to keep giving you guys some new and cool content. But thank you in advance. It's time for Opray Today. Uh, Brian, you want to start off? Because you got, you got a nice tasting morsel over there. Sure thing. I have a buddy of mine that I do a bit of a unofficial, official beer swapping with. And usually, you know, when we're doing some ski trips up to Vermont, you know, there's a, you know, a bevy of wonderful beers that we get when we're up there. And I you know, try to bring some extra ones back and, and share with some people. So this buddy of mine, he is a, uh, he lives in North New Jersey, right near the New York state border and came across this wonderful brewery in Middletown, New York called Equilibrium. And they put out this beer called Harvester of Simcoe. And it just, uh, it's a double IPA, 8.8%. So it's a little bit heavy, but it, it drinks so smooth. It's got this like uh, sugary grapefruit, mango-ish flavor. Um, Simcoe hops, so they, it's, you get the unique hoppy flavor, but it isn't really that piney or bitter. For being 8.8%, it is really light and really smooth and really good. So if you're in the Middletown, New York area, please go to Equilibrium. You can find some fantastic beers there. Nice. Sounds uh, sounds delicious. I wish I was there tasting it. <laughs> I'll save uh, you. Then. See, yeah, that's right. Um, so for me, I'm going back to an old favorite. Uh, feeling better this week, uh, but I'm still feeling in the uh, in the bourbon wheelhouse. So I broke out my old favorite, Basil Hayden. Uh, I've talked about it many times on here, had it a bunch of times on the, on the podcast. It's just kind of a go-to. Um, so if you're just getting into bourbons, I would recommend this. This is the the one that got me started in bourbon and I've been a bourbon fan ever since. And now you're a podcaster. So that's right. It helps you fulfill your dreams is really what you're trying to say. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now along with, uh, some of the, Along with Opre today, we got a bunch of uh, Opre ski news, don't we? There's some cool stories around this past week. Independent Brewer Milestone, 3,000 sign up for the seal. In the last, in less than eight months, more than 3,000 craft brewing companies representing more than 6,000 craft beer locations in the U.S. have signed on 
to use the independent craft brewer seal. Reaching this milestone is just the tip of the iceberg. More breweries will continue to adopt and use the seal, deepening the impact of the powerful new certified mark. Ooh. This was done, I guess, to send a message, you know, the to show that we are independent, we are small, we care about our product. I'm looking at my beer right now, and I don't see said identifier, but I also see that this can looks like it was made in someone's basement. It's like kind of that's the silver can, you know, it's a little bit dented. It's got a uh, you know, pretty basic sticker on there. So nice. But it's cool, you know, people are are proud to be independent. They're, they're proud to be doing their own thing and keeping it real. So it's cool that this is uh this this uh they came up with this seal and this identification to let people know what they're all about. That's cool, you know, because uh, so many big brewers have been buying up the uh, the little guys, and you don't realize like who's owned by who. I mean, you, even the distribution is kind of a little a little big brotherish when you start looking at the distribution. But uh, even ownership, like people are like, "Oh yeah, I love this beer. It's like its own independence." Like, no, dude, they're owned by InBev, or you know, that's that's owned by Molson Coors. You know, like there's like three beer companies, and they're buying everybody else up. So it's kind of like to let people know that, yes, this is still independent. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. A lot of times you don't even realize it. Like you said, you know, you think you're drinking this, this little uh, independent thing and it's like, Oh no, they were bought by, you know, by a, for a billion dollars, you know, by InBev last year. I mean, if you get a chance, just go online, look up InBev, look at Molson Coors and what's the other big one. Um, uh, but even if you look at just those two, you will see, you will be amazed at like, Oh my God, I didn't realize how many brands are under, this umbrella you know it's just it's crazy yeah it's not um constellation is it that's like a liquor but they they have beer companies too uh i think they might they bought ballast point i believe oh did they years ago wow yeah it's just uh it's big conglomerates i mean even even if they let them operate independently which a lot of them do they still you know, run their own brewery, they're still chain up to, you know, the big, the bigger company. I mean, I was mentioned, you know, our trip, I was mentioned the Ben and Jerry's when you realize at the end of the little tour that they're owned by Unilever, you're like, damn it. They were the holdout, man. I thought they were still holding it, keeping it real, but no, they're, they're Unilever. Nope. They're, they're uh, Rolls Royce in it now. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I so. was there. I'm looking at the rest of this article and they have a couple interviews with folks, you know, from some of the breweries that, that are putting this on their label now. And one of them was, is, you know, a brewery that we just had a few beers from a few weeks ago. when uh rich from all about, I was here roadhouse brewing out in Jackson hole. And I have a bottle that I kept there because I love the way it looked and I'm looking at it and I, yeah, I see the little, the little icon there. It's nice. Like, it's like an upside down beer bottle. Um, that says, you know, independent brewers. So very cool. If you, if that's important to you, if you uh, like people who are craftsmen and, and keep it real and, and love their product, look for that, that seal on there. And uh, I'm sure you'll find a beer that you'll really enjoy. Cool. All right. Next up, we got a, uh, a man who figured out how to make wine in an instant pot. <laughs> so there Wait, is a, start off, what is an instant pot? So an instant pot, you were just looking this up. I looked it up really quickly before. It's almost, it looks like a, um, a cross between a pressure cooker and a slow cooker. And it's like an inst, I guess the idea is you can cook things at different temperatures. So I guess it's like kind of like a crock pot, but it can do stuff like quicker. Like, I don't know. 
It's like a pressure cooker, a crock pot, a rice steamer. And it's, it's like a couple things all in one. Yeah, it's kind of strange. So there's a New Jersey based food blogger, David Murphy, um, and he figured out um, how to put grapes or rather grape juice in, in this crock pot and turn it into wine using the yogurt setting on his instant pot. Now, we looked at his blog, his uh, Instagram account, actually, I looked at his and he, it's basically he, he does a lot of cooking out of this instant pot, which is kind of cool. So I don't know if he just loves it so much. He just decided to get into cooking everything out of the instant pot. But uh, yeah, he has this recipe that we were talking about before. It's just um, put on the yogurt setting. The basics of it are put on the yogurt setting. You add Welch's grape juice, sugar and red wine yeast. And it basically cooks it within, I think it's like two days, right? Yeah. 48 hours, 48 hours. And it comes out. Um, he describes it as like, people are very shocked at how decent it was for spending about $2 worth of grape juice. (laughs) Um, and, and creating like a, an actual wine out of it. So, uh, it's very interesting, but, uh, just definitely, I think we got to try this out. Dude, I was saying, I was telling you, I want to buy one of these instant pots now just to try this. And the one thing is he, he mentions he uses a six, Ooh, is it six ounces or six cups? It must be six cups, right? No, that seems pretty small. Then. Six quarts. Six quarts. He has a six quart instant pot because they come in different sizes. I think it's three, six, and either nine or 12. Hmm. So a six quart one costs around 150 bucks from Amazon. So I guess I to properly decide if it's worth it, you have to do that math. Cause he says it tastes like a eight to $12 bottle of wine. That is wild. So let's just say it's 10 bucks. Now it's a pretty decent bottle of wine. You know, it's a normal bottle of wine. It's a good, but yeah, it's a decent bottle. So if it's 10 bucks and there's three, he says it's better than three buck Chuck. So let's say there's a $7 difference. So you got to divide 150 by seven to figure out how many bottles you got to buy, you got to make out of your instant pot to justify the purchase. But actually if he's doing six quarts, he's making one bottle or is it more than that? I think the six quarts is just the size machine he has, which gives, you know, there must be a little bit of extra room for it to do its thing. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess if you get a bottle and that's just it, like, I don't know how, what the yield he gets out of that. Um, recipe is it one bottle or two bottles worth if he gets two bottles worth now you're talking about really blowing the uh formula out of proportion so well i guess the 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 grape juice bottle i think is like 64 ounces right yeah how many is that two bottles of wine i think that's about two bottles of wine right 750 milliliters is uh what must be less than well 750 milliliters is a bottle of wine, and that is about 24 ounces, 24.6, they're saying. Okay. Oh, no, I put 730. 750 milliliters, 25 ounces. 25, yeah, 25.3, so 25. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, you got 64 ounces. I mean, you could theoretically try to get two bottles out of it. Depends how much reduces down. Yeah. So that, yeah, it's about two bottles then maybe a little more depending on what you lose. Yeah. So yeah, it takes 48 hours of cooking it and then about a week to let it settle in a, uh, a cool dry place. Oh, he does let it settle for a while. Okay. So that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Cause I was trying to figure out 
we were talking about it and you said he adds the yeast and I know the yeast eats up the sugar. I made wine before and I was like, that's pretty quick for it to turn everything into sugar, but he lets it sit a week. So that makes sense. It has a little more time to do its thing. Yeah. You also can't cook it too high of a heat because you'll kill the yeast. That's true. Yeah. I guess that yogurt setting comes in, comes into play. Right. But he said, yeah, it's a very palatable wine. It's got hints of chocolate and dark cherries. (laughs) (laughs) But no, like I, I think my big concern is if I did this, I would have to do this every week, and I would be drinking two bottles of wine every week. You know what it is? He's hey, let me make some wine. Just you know, do it every few weeks. I love that idea, though. Yeah. Now I guess that goes into our next story too, because maybe it's a good thing because a new study correlates alcohol and coffee consumption with longer lifespans. Nice. Yeah, a brand new study from the University of California, Irvine is making the rounds on the web, suggesting that consumption of quote unquote moderate amounts of both alcohol and coffee is indeed linked to longer lifespans. So seven cups of coffee a day and about five drinks a day isn't good? No, that's, I think that could be considered moderate depending on your, your scale and your, uh, where you live. There you go. There you go. I yeah. like that. The study found that people who drank moderate amounts of alcohol or coffee lived longer than those who abstained. And surprisingly, mm-hmm. that people who were overweight in their 70s lived longer than normal or underweight people did. Hmm. You got to pack on the pounds when you're in your 70s. You got to pack them on. That's it. That's pretty wild. And this was a long-term study. This went for a while, right? Since 20, 2003? 2003, yeah. So, you know, 10, 10 to 15 years of, of data. 15 years. Yeah, that's a good amount of time. Wow. The same study also found evidence of what has been accepted general knowledge forever, that regular exercise and hobbies are also linked to living a longer life. So hobbies, exercise, and coffee and wine and beer. And this is why skiing is the perfect sport. Because you wake up, you got to get up early. You got to have some coffee, get yourself fired up. You go out, you go do your thing, you ski, you come back, you have a beer at the end of the day or two or three, you go to sleep and you do it all over again. So all the things you need, coffee, exercise, and alcohol are all part of the experience. Exactly. Perfect. This makes perfect sense to me. It, it does. <laughs> it does make perfect sense. Um, yeah, so, uh, I'm going to use this, uh, when I go to the doctor next time, be like, look, (laughs) I know you had this on the survey, you know, they asked you that questionnaire, like how many drinks you drink a week, how much coffee you drink. I'm like, look, man, I read this article just to let you know, to educate you, you know? So we're gonna have to print it out and bring it. Yeah. I mean, they have medicinal marijuana. How about why not like medicinal, uh, bourbon? It's only a matter of time or well, marijuana with bourbon. Bourbon with marijuana. Be? Like, didn't they used to give uh, like alcohol as pretty much medicine? That's exactly. That's how Coca-Cola started. It had a uh, coca leaf in it, which is part of cocaine. What and about they like, would put it in there and mix it for pharmaceutical purposes. What about like when you went to like a Western, like when everyone's getting like their hand, you know, corduroyed or anything, you know, they always like drink a bunch of whiskey. That's it. And the cauterize the wound. <laughs> drink the whiskey and then pour, put a stick under your mouth, you know, in your mouth and that's it. Yeah. Sanitize everything. <laughs> <laughs> Making the world better. Mm-hmm. 
Um, all right. Well, speaking of making the world better, uh, Monkey Shoulder, the bourbon maker. Uh, is it whiskey maker or bourbon maker? I think it's whiskey. They're whiskey. I, think, maker. I don't think it's particularly bourbon. So Monkey Shoulder, they're actually touring the U.S. with a 2,400 gallon cocktail shaker. So they actually made this truck, um, and on it is this gigantic shaker, um, and it's actually filled with liquid. So it's holding, uh, you know, 2,400 gallons of liquid uh, cocktails. And I guess what they do is they're they're It's a big cocktail shaker that's actually being used. So while they're driving around, I guess it it shakes it up. And uh, they they brought it to the uh, Arizona Cocktail Week, and uh, it looked pretty badass. I was like, I want to know who made this thing for them because it's pretty nice looking. Yeah, I tweeted this out the day uh, that I saw this. And I was like, now how great would it be if that just kind of rolled up to like apres ski? Oh, yeah. Giant flatbed with a 2,400 gallon cocktail shaker. Mm. So it's 27 foot long, 13 feet tall shaker. And it's powered by a 5,000 watt Cummins Oman diesel commercial generator that has its own built in sound system. It can hold the equivalent of. Uh, 123,000 bottles of monkey shoulder. So um, they're saying, you know, what do they serve out as cocktail shakers? So for the first event, uh, they actually did a mixture of monkey shoulder, mint syrup, and soda. So kind of like a julep, I guess, right? A monkey um, julep. And lemon juice chosen for the university. It's playful, fun use of the whiskey. So uh, that's pretty cool. So they actually had, so I wonder if this is going to be in uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. The biggest- I don't know. Actually, cocktail shaker, right? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a cement mixer is the way. I, like, if you had to, a chrome, it's a chrome cement, like mixer. a chrome cement mixer. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how exactly they 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 must. Uh, I don't know if they twist it and they. I guess the hydraulic can lift it up so it can pour in. I don't know. It might just be shaped like that, and they have. Uh, I wonder if it turns. That'd be cool if it turned. We'll have to go on YouTube and look up some videos of it. Yeah. But yeah, they are a blended scotch whiskey monkey shoulder. We're going to have to do a little more research on this. Yeah. Because I want to see it work. Yeah, right. I'm sure there's there's got to be a YouTube video out there of it. Yeah. Or if you have one already, send it to us. Skibumpodcast at gmail.com. Let's see it. it. All right. And with that. Let's get into the Genjula. Now, our buddy Frank, known the uh, from Frank's Bean of the Week fame, he is currently en route to Jackson Hole for a little bit of a ski trip, um, and he sent us a very specific Bean of the Week for his trip, and he sent us Gatekeeper OG because he's going to be going out the gates of Jackson to go skiing in the backcountry. So nice. it was a very topical choice this week. So Gatekeeper OG is a sativa-dominant hybrid strain that was bred as an attempt to recreate and stabilize the Farmer 12 version of OG Kush. Its breeding process consists of crossing Sensi Star, Medicine Man, and OG Kush, and then back-crossing it with OG Kush several more times to accentuate its earthy pine aroma and powerful effect profile. Hmm. Expect that familiar OG Kush experience that begins with blissful relaxation and ends with a ravenous appetite. 
<laughs> yeah, so, so the, effects you're going to get euphoria, relaxation, a little bit of sleepiness, a little uplifted, and a little focused. Earthy, sweet, and flowery. And unfortunately, if you're trying to drop the pounds, not the best choice. You're going to get hungry and have dry eyes. Yeah, that's like the only negative. If you look at the the bar, it's like a full bar of dry eyes. I'm like, damn, that's the only negative, but it's pretty, pretty big. Frank, thanks for sending that in and hope you have a great trip in Jackson. I think we may have to actually get Frank on the podcast one of these weeks. We're going to have to talk to him after his trip to Jackson. Definitely. Yeah. He's getting a little, uh, he's starting to see all of our guests that we're getting and all of our interviews. He's getting a little, uh, I think he's feeling a little bit needy. And I think he, he, FOMO. he's concerned that he's, uh, he's uh, losing a place in our hearts. And I want to let him know that Frank, no, you are, you are very special. You're very important to the podcast. You, you could never be replaced. He's our OG. He, he's our OG. He's our OG. <laughs> <laughs> Frank OG. That's right. That's the, that's the strain of this podcast. Frank OG. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, so we got a little story in the uh, in the gondola, um, some gondola talk, for, you know, if you will. So uh, marijuana for moms. So the Atlantic had a story that just dropped uh, probably in the last, I think, yesterday, um, and they're talking about how people talk about wine moms. Uh, there's actually this new group that's a, that's appearing uh, of marijuana for moms of marijuana moms. So they, they kind of make a clever joke about, you know, um, equating it to wine moms where, you know, wine moms get together, they have book club, they do, you know, they, they talk about stuff, they de-stress with some wine and they talk about it with their friends. They, they get together for, you know, having some wine. Um, and they're saying they're doing it now in marif- marijuana friendly, um, places, you know, that have legalized it where it's such, it's becoming a lot more accepted and a lot more, uh, social, you know, for people to just kind of, Hey, why don't we get together and we're going to smoke up, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and there's a lot of good writing in the Atlantic. Uh, Lindsay Hunter Lopez wrote this, but, um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. They said it's also pushed the envelope for the need and the, um, the, demand for different types of marijuana products. So not just having, you know, uh, smokables, but this is where it gets into, Hey, why don't you come over? I got some, you know, cool cookies for us to have and, you know, brownies and, you know, edibles and drinkables. So it's kind of, uh, interesting. They're saying like, as it is out there and as these products are more available to people, you know, more people are going to try them and it's going to have its social, social place, almost like, you know, wine does for, for, for people, you know, just getting together and, uh, hanging out, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting to talk about too, you know, the different ways they try it. You know, they have brownies and candies and you know, different edibles. And one of the things, um, that was interesting is that one mother said, this is more like a Xanax, yeah. you know, uh, you know, you're still clear headed, you're still productive, but you're, uh, you don't feel guilty around your kids. You feel a little more mellow. You know, where as opposed to, you know, a mom who's got three glasses of wine in her, you know, there's not a whole lot of positive things that can happen from that. And yeah. what I found really interesting is that it talked to, into one of the moms out in California, you know, she was dealing with um, pain from breast cancer and 
she was able to start using CBD products and that was able to, you know, it was the best thing that she took and it was able to help her with her nausea and pain. Hey, that's, that's great, man. And then another mother talking about, um, for breastfeeding related ailments, you know, she, uh, she had mastitis, which I think is when your milk ducts kind of back up. You know, my wife is still in that phase. So I'm, I'm lear- I've learned so much about this whole, the magic of the female body after having a baby. Learning all about the breast ducts now, right? All about them. I always was. Um, <laughs> but you're always now on a different level. <laughs> uh, but it talks about how she actually would rub CBD oil on her breasts and uh, it would relieve the pain. Wow. So, you know, it, it's always been such a taboo topic, marijuana. And now it's it's just so great seeing that people are are really starting to see studies and information and real people experiencing real life improvements based on this natural growing plant. And yeah. now people are, are starting to talk about it more. You know, that's one of the great things about the, the internet is that information has spread and people's ability to find new information and curiosity has spread too. So. Well, and that's just it. The knowledge like starts getting around and now because it's available uh, recreationally, it doesn't mean you can't take it for medical ailments. So it's going to happen. It's just like aspirin or, you know, people take other things, prescription things for, for ailments. They'll say, Hey, you know, I don't need to take that Xanax. I could just have this edible that actually makes me feel just as good. So I don't have to have the, the Xanax, you know what I mean? So it's another right. weapon in everybody's arsenal. For combating here in that the pharmaceutical companies because they want to get you on 13 different prescriptions at a time if they can and then and this you don't need a prescription either which is great and where do you think all these uh this reefer madness you know propaganda nonsense and war on drugs has come from it's it's all speared from them the pharmaceutical industry because they don't want to lose money they don't want to lose their profits they're going to tell you that this is evil and you shouldn't use it yeah it's really and the more information you read about and the more you, you kind of look into this, you, the more you realize it is corrupt propaganda that has you know sent this message out to our entire society. But now, luckily, a lot of people who are much smarter and more pioneering have started breaking this down and, and we're just kind of riding this wave with them at this point. Well, I like also that like the, this article talks about when you eat something laced with uh, marijuana, uh, how the cannabis is me- metabolized by the liver, right? And it gives you one type of effect. Uh, when you um, put it, you know, if you ingest it and it's absorbed in the bloodstream, like under the tongue, it actually doesn't get processed by the liver. And that's where they're saying it's more like a Xanax. So I'm like, this is pretty cool. Like it's kind of the same drug maybe even the same dosage, but how you're taking it like gives you different effect. Like it, it's pretty neat that people are actually able to say like, this is a different effect having it one way versus another, you know, it's nice to see that. Wow. It's, it's really getting where people are getting to, to understand how it all makes you feel, which is interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, we're all trying to, you know, we all have pain in this world and we're all trying to find ways to heal it and live the, the best lives that we can is the best us we can be. So you know what? Why shouldn't we try to use every tool, every uh, every possibility that's out there? So I say, give it a try. Go for it. Find what uh, helps you be the best you you can be. Right? That's right, man. What's wrong with that? Amen, brother. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And now to be the best we can be. Let's go to ski news. 
Boom. All right, Brian, you get the first one because this is hitting you right, right to home. Oh, God. Yeah. Major storms, east and west, United States right now. Unfortunately, I am in the pretty much on the line of the snow, rain, uh, nor'easter that we're getting here on the East Coast. And uh, that's called the lovely, is, lovely wintry mix, right? Yeah, I'm just a little bit, you know, you, we've, heard, we've been talking about our tales of why we are where we are right now, both Mario and I. And um, it's definitely caused me to reevaluate certain things in my life and where I want to go with my life, my family, and my podcast. So, but for now, um, Northeast is getting hit with a, uh, a big nor'easter storm. So if you're not familiar with the nor'easter, though it's a storm that kind of goes along the, um, the East Coast. And also from the West, a, uh, another storm comes in. So they kind of mix together and almost form like a, sort of hurricane motion that goes up the coast and tends to bring a lot more wind and a lot more precipitation. And a lot of beach erosion. That's the big problem too. What's that? A lot of beach erosion. That's what kills the, uh, the coastline. Beach erosion, flash flooding, heavy rain, everything. Yeah. So kind of like New York city is right about where the, uh, the rain snow line is now. If you go further West, it comes snow further South it becomes rain. Vermont, and specifically Maine is getting, and New Hampshire, getting a good amount of snow. I'm seeing reports from six to a foot in most places. Wow. Um, and I was supposed to be in Vermont today. Mm. Supposed to be up last night and uh, would have been enjoying all this powder. But, you know, sometimes uh, life goes, hey, look over there and bends you over and gives you the business. And that was kind of what happened to me this week. But you know what? I'm not mad. I'm staying positive. As long as there's snow falling. There's yeah, snow. And then West there. Coast. West Coast. Oh, my God. California, the Sierras, Tahoe, Mammoth. You know, they, they've kind of had a, a bit of a rougher start to the season this year, but they are getting just pounded right now with snow. I'm seeing I'm seeing three to seven feet in some places Damn. In, the, in Tahoe. So um, it's, uh, it's coming. Thing. Colorado and Utah, they're finally getting hit with some good storms. So some places had a bit of a false start to this winter, but everything is, uh, is kicking into gear right now, which is good because that'll help extend the season uh, deep into April, which should be nice. Mm-hmm. Let's see how uh, Whistler's doing today. Let's see 48 hour snowfall, 41 centimeters, seven day snowfall, 74 centimeters. That doesn't yeah. suck. That does not suck. Yeah. Daytime snow, one to three centimeters today and overnight one to three centimeters. So they're getting like a freshening. They got out of the next five days, they got three days of snow on the, on the forecast. Isolated flurries. So keeping track of Whistler because I think it's official, Brian, the bums are going to be, where are we going to be? The bums will be back at Whistler in a few weeks. Boom. This will be our annual jamboree yes this is gonna be this is becoming our uh, our annual trip now yes i think we're gonna have to make a bigger deal of it now i kind of yeah i mean, we'll get into it in a couple of weeks more details but yeah this is uh i i just was able to pull this off and this, uh, we'll this be is like christmas all over again this this really is the second christmas 
I'm I'm so excited. Uh, yeah. I had to pull a lot of strings and I'm going to be owing my wife and son big time for the next couple months, but uh, it's all going to be worth it. I cannot wait. So That's right. nice. Big mountain skiing, baby. Big mountain, little back country we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing a little boot packing. It's going to be nice. Oh, I can't wait. Bring your avalanche gear. We're going to need it. We're going to, we're going to be off, off uh, trail, off the reservation. So excited. And it'll actually be light out this time, unlike last time when the, when the sun was setting like two o'clock in the uh, afternoon. Yeah, we got lucky though. We got what? Every time I've been to Whistler, it's always bluebird days. <laughs> all one time. <laughs> it's been sunny all the time. It was like three, we'll four days in a row. Well, yeah, we'll see now if that uh, if that keeps holding true. If that does hold true, man, they're gonna they're gonna like uh, put you up there <laughs> a couple months out of the season. Yeah, just fly me up every other week. Just be like, all right, we don't want you here all the time, but we do want you here a good amount of the time. That's right. They got a big event coming. We got to fly Mario in. He's like, he's our lucky charm. That's right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that'll be. It's gonna be a fun time. We have a good good ass time. I uh, can't wait. Uh. And I got to talk to you about the night before you fly out. Um, I think it's called the Hoboken Jamboree is going to be going down March Madness. Ooh, Steve and a whole bunch of other people are going to be in watching uh, March Madness. So we'll talk about that. Oh, all could right. Be a bump sponsored event potentially. <laughs> um, I'll give you a six pack of uh, Labatt. There you go. This is our contribution as a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Boom. Don't drink it all at once. Shots of Labatt for everybody. <laughs> All right. Um, I know the Olympics just passed, but I think uh, this is something that, you know, Brian and I, uh, we kind of, we were very impressed with this and we talked about it, but we never really mentioned it. And uh, well, I think, I think uh, her event hit after we brought, after we did our last podcast. It was like a day or two afterwards. Right. Her last event. Right. So um, the Czech snowboarder that made Olympic history, uh, Esther Ledecka, um, 22 years old, man. And she won in the same Olympics um, for, you know, gold medals and dual sports, two different sports. One was um, the parallel um, snowboard slalom. That's the one that was like the last event. Right. And the other one, one of the last. And then uh, the parallel giant slalom. And what was the other one? Was this the women's super super G? The women's super G. And I think she was more of a snowboarder than a skier. And for her to win that, yeah. it was like, it's amazing to be at that level. So uh, congratulations. In yeah. her second sport. It's not even like, it's not even like you do the downhill and the super G or the downhill and the slalom. Like this is like, if you were like a swimmer and like a javelin thrower. That's crazy, man. You know, or like I'm, I'm a swimmer and I'm also, you know, I'm like a Taekwondo artist, martial artist. Yeah, that was the, so that was the event. Michaela came in fourth, right? Or fifth? Was it the Super G? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, fourth, I think. Fourth. Um, which It's just amazing. I mean, she had just a, an amazing run on that, on that uh, Super G. But yeah, you know, tip I had to her, I think, you know, we're probably going to see, we're seeing people uh, from warm weather countries compete in the winter Olympics. We're seeing people in the winter Olympics compete in multiple disciplines. Um, I still want to see them combine ski jumping and biathlon. That's really, that's really what I want to see. 
Um, yeah, I want to see people shooting at targets while in the air for the ski jump. While in the air. That's exactly like handguns or something. That'd be kind of cool, you know, what or grenades? bow and arrow. Grenades. <laughs> you can launch grenades <laughs> when you're launching your ski jump. Bow and arrow while you're skiing. That's not bad. Ooh, that would right. be pretty awesome. That'd be pretty uh, crafty. Um, That's like the Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Maybe you got to shoot when you land, like the targets are in front, you know? I don't know. We'll We'll figure that out. Well, there could be different versions of it, yeah. Like you know, they have in the uh, the biathlon, they have the, the the lay down and they have the stand up shooting. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So maybe like maybe the first round, you got to launch your, you got to use a bow and arrow while you're in the air, and then one time as soon as you land. Well, so you know how they have the Nordic combine, which is, um, I think it's Nordic combine, right? Where they do ski jumping and then they do um, cross country skiing, right? And they mm-hmm. do times in both. How about if they start that where you do the ski jump, you land, and then you cross country ski from there after the landing and they time. Uh-huh. So I guess you have to figure out what's the better way to go. Would you rather ski jump in your cross country skis? Exactly. Or would you rather cross country ski in your ski jump skis? Or are you going to do a quick change out, you know, press their change out? I don't no, know. You got to use one pair. That, that would be cool. Or do you have one cross country ski and one ski jump ski? Well, if you threw a biathlon shooting thing in there, they could switch skis during the shooting. So they could ski jump, then cross country ski for a little bit with the same skis. But shoot, they have to, and then they switch into the cross country. They got to carry it all the whole time. Well, they definitely got to jump with the ski with the uh, with the gun and the gun. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, they should have to carry it all. So they're going to jump with all that gear and then be able to switch. I think this could go. I'm going to propose that to the IOC. This could be very interesting. I think there's a lot of ways it could go. Could you imagine if they had to ski jump with cross country skis on? <laughs> that would be awesome. That would, that would be, be a, that ran, that landing would be a Lulu as they say. <laughs> that would be a shit show. That would be a, a highlight reel. Every jump. Well, I was finding <laughs> funny too. You know, even in like the, um, the freestyle skiing, like the moguls, it's like, yeah, I'm going to make you ski these ridiculous moguls. But I also want you doing backflips. Yeah, that's kind of. See, I like that. They're pushing that, pushing I the limit. Like too, but it's like, isn't moguls hard enough? They're gonna make them do flips also. I think you should do, you should add in chess there too. You gotta do like two chess moves at the top, and you gotta do two chess moves at the bottom. I don't know. You gotta break <laughs> it out. <laughs> it's like the boxing. Uh, what is it? The chess boxing. Yeah. Do something like that. <laughs> while while you're in Olympic Village, you're on the clock for some game. It's just something. It could be like Go. It could be um, chess. It could be uh, checkers. It could be Battleship. You never yeah, know. Yeah, ba- Battleship would be good. Yeah. You just never. You never know what you're gonna pull. So you could have those games going at the same time as the Olympic games. This like could, this could possibly happen. Olympic Village. So like when you step into Olympic Village, like you know, it would be like a thing. Like I can't spend too much time in Olympic village. I don't, I don't have a good chess game. You know what I mean? Like people would be like, I, I can't, you know, I got to sleep on the bus or something. Cause I can't go into the village. I'm going to be on the clock for chess. I don't know. I think it, it, we can make it work. Yeah. Got to talk to the IOC. We can make this, uh, a much more interesting for 20, uh, 2026. And you know, with Esther doing this, it, it kind of brings out like, you know, maybe some more people are going to, it's going to motivate more people to, to try multiple disciplines. And, you know, I think you can, especially like, you know, we talked about the, um, 
the cross country skiers from the warm weather country, um, those guys did other sports, you know, in the, in the mm-hmm. summer. So it's kind of like interesting to see like, all right, they're doing multiple discipline in different Olympics, you know, but it's cross training doing other, other uh, sports. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see like, you know, Michael Phelps do like diving, do like, you know, the big diving too. That'd be cool. Yeah. This is amazing though. Like I know we have a, a buddy of ours, Rem, who he skis and snowboards and I think he likes them both, but he's better at skiing. So he's going to more likely to do that. I just, this is amazing about, about Miss about Esther is that she had the time to be so good at both. At both, like you know, world-class, like, you're world-class. I mean, the best, to be the yeah. best in both events. That's nuts. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, what a super athlete she is to be able to do that. What so, would be uh, your two events? If you, if you could pick two events that are not related that you could do, what would you do? Probably downhill skiing and luge. Oh, how about not the, two, not the two person luge? That's ridiculous. I don't know who invented that. That was, I just, I, I'm not into the two person luge. That's just, uh, how about ice hockey and skeleton? That's pretty cool. Yeah. You got, you play ice hockey. You're between games. You jump on a skeleton and you're zipping down face first. I got time between periods to pull this off. That's right. I got, I got a little time or ice hockey and like figure skating. That would be kind of fun. That's the cutting edge. You're like, you know, you're you're pretty beat up. That's, that's it. And (laughs) speed skating and throwing speed skating there too. I like the, uh, you see they had the, uh, like the mass start speed skating now. Yeah, that's nuts, man. That was pretty cool. I mean, even running, like I ran track in, in high school and I remember the mass start events were just, you think about track, you're like, oh, it's just people running. There's no contact. There's elbows and pushing and shit. It is like, you really, you don't realize like it is Thunderdome. Like <laughs> people trying yeah. to get an edge anyway, man. Oh yeah. You're all friggin' amped up adrenaline flowing through you. You're going to run some people over. It's all skinny arms and elbows just going. It's like, you know, broomstick handles just hitting each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like in the, um, the tour de pharmacy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> big crash. <laughs> the big crash. Uh, that's awesome. That was a great movie. Uh, yeah. I watched it again last weekend for some reason. Anybody has so not funny. seen there's tour de pharmacy, which are the, uh, the spoof ones. There's tour de pharmacy, seven days in hell. And what's the other one? The boy band one. Um, Oh, uh, the I couldn't get into Pop that star one. or something. Yeah, yeah, they're all pretty funny. But Seven Days in Hell and and Tour de Pharmacy are great. And those are all uh, both um, uh, the same guy, right? Andy Samberg. Yeah, Andy yeah. Samberg. Mm-hmm. All right. So next up, so our home mountain of Killington, Vermont, has just announced a plethora of upgrades that they are going to do to the mountain for uh, the next upcoming ski season for 2018, 2019. That includes, they are bringing back the South Ridge triple, which has been out of commission since 2011. They are also going to add a new six person high speed bubble chairlift to what is now the slow and freezing Snowden quad. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. The bubble. 
and they're going to be upgrading. What's that? Well, that's a nice area, but the lift is slow and it's cold as shit on that on that side. The wind. Yeah, that combination is not good. Cold and slow. They're also upgrading the K1 Express gondola by putting in new. Um. What's the word I'm looking for here? New cabins. They're putting in new cabins. Uh, they're going to be eight person, but uh, be better for uh, improved reliability and de-icing. Oh, cool. They're also going to be putting in a bunch of new tunnels around certain areas that have a, a significant amount of, you know, areas coming together, like, you know, three or four trails that come together. They're going to put some, some nice tra- uh, tunnels in oh, to wow. avoid congestion. <laughs> so it looks like they're uh, they're making some big improvements. They're saying they're spending sixteen million dollars wow. in improvements this upcoming season. So that's pretty Killington cool. Killington is uh, is not messing around. They're going big. So Great Northern Bunny Buster Mousetrap. That's a shit show because they all come together. Great they Northern like Upper Shoot. One spot has like a fence there, but it's like yeah, it's a shit show. It's really bad. And then Great Northern Upper and Lower Shoot, because you have all the beginners and intermediates on Great Northern, and then you have the upper ones coming in, and it's like, it's just waiting for somebody to collide. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, and one other big item that we've talked about before, they are adding the RFID gates. Nice, finally. Yeah, so no more uh, having to get scanned manually with the barcode. RFID gates, so... A lot of big things happening. But they also said, too, they actually asked the question in an interview, is the K1 Express going to still run on cow power? And yes, it will. 100% renewable energy from uh, cow farts, pretty much. Cow farts. So are they going to build a tunnel to hold the cows under there and then just like capture the methane as they fart right there? That's a smart move. Well, then they should should be offering those cows off and have the burgers there. At the uh, Peak Lodge. Just saying, it kind of all feeds itself right there. You it's know? like a circle of life all at the mountain. That's right. Not mm. a bad move. Oh, they're also moving the Snowden Palma to Ramshead. Snowden Palma to Ramshead. Oh, yeah, the, okay. uh, the J-Bar? Yeah. Moving that. Nice. So nice. A, lot of, a lot of big things. You know, when you go skiing in Killington next year, you're not even going to recognize it. I was going to say, it's going to look like a different mountain with all that, all those changes. Seriously. Wow. That other lift that they're going to get going, I think that's going to help because that's that part of the mountain is decent to ski, but it's hard to get to. You have to take like a few lifts like to get there. And then when you ski there, when you ski, you can't like loop it. You got to go like around and, and do that whole circle again. So, and there's a lot of really good, uh, tree, tree trails in there. Yeah. You know, you're like, Oh, I want to do them, but you know what? It's such a pain to get up there. I'm only going to do it once because, I don't want to have to deal with, you know, going up with that stupid lift again all the time. Right. And a lot of it is uh, intermediate. So you'll keep some of the intermediate and beginner skiers like in that area off of the other parts of the mountain possibly too, you know? Yeah. Because <clears throat> that's where it gets congested and a little bit crazy. Very interesting. But my question is, are they going to do something about the congestion up at the Peak Lodge? Well, they're supposed to be upgrading the K1 Lodge, but I don't, I don't see anything in here on this page talking about that because that's, All they need that's to the, do is have a host that seats you or a hostess that seats you 
go get your own food, but at least you won't have people hovering over you while you eat. Yeah. It's crazy. It's inhuman. It's inhuman. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> people get by. Somehow we get by. It's like, you know, you're getting jacked for your seat, man. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up, we have the annual DPS Riders Weekend returns to Utah, April 6th through 8th. So you'll have a chance. Um, it's going to be some good times in the Wasatch and it's DPS riders weekend. You have a chance to ski hard for two days with the DPS crew and friends from around the world. Um, so they're going to have sommeliers pouring wonderful Slovenian Rose. They're going to have cocktail parties. They're going to have opera events, um, demos. So, uh, sounds to be like a, a pretty big, cool event. So they have uh, Mike at dpsskis.com if you want to learn more about it. Um, and there are reservations online. Uh, you just look it up, but, um, yeah, it looks pretty cool. They're going to have a little, this is the kind of crap that we should be invited to. <clears throat> uh, that's what I'm thinking, but you know, like, why are we not part of this? No DPS. We always, we always give you some love. Opportunity for testing and advanced purchase of the 18 to 19 product line, including the new Cassier collection with complimentary binding mount. Ooh. So generous. I got, I got my DPS skis. I'm a DPS owner. I mean, yeah. Why aren't you being invited to this? I don't know. I don't know. Cause nobody loves me, man. That's why this is a slap in the face. (laughs) Damn you DPS. Come on DPS. You know, we love you. I still love my skis. (laughs) Send us a little bit of love. Absolutely. We're giving plenty of love out. You got to give a little bit boomerang it back this way. Yeah, right. Boom. All right. And then last off, this is a, a crazy story. Drone captures snowmobilers terrifying fall into a frozen lake. This is nuts, man. So this is kind of ski news. We're including it in here because you know what? It's our podcast and uh, we, we felt like it belonged here. That's right. Skiish. What does every skier yeah. do? What do a lot of skiers do on their day off from skiing and a big like week long skiing you go you go snowmobiling exactly in this story uh, a drone pilot caught a near-death spill on camera after following the unnamed snowmobiler out on his ride across a patch of frozen ice his drone was circling overhead the moment the ice gave way watching as the man's snowmobile sunk beneath the surface for a few seconds the lone the drone loses sight of the guy before swiveling around to the horrifying sight of the snowmobiler submerged in the freezing water. Struggling for leverage, he whips out two screwdrivers for a pair of makeshift ice picks, clawing his way out of the slush like a mountain climber. Dude was smart, man. Yeah, right? Before we can tell if the guy makes it out, the drone swivels back around and flies toward land back to the pilot on shore. Uh, Brand told Shock Mansion that he called 911 once he saw the man fall through the ice, according to the Daily Mail, and the fire department was ultimately able to rescue him. Man, it was crazy. So it just talks about, you know, like as much as people, you know, find drones a little bit creepy and you know, an evasion of privacy, there are some times where, you know, if, if a drone catches something like this, you can really be thankful and it'll really just, you know, save your ass. And that dude was smart. Like he pulled out those, those screwdrivers really quick. Mm-hmm. He's out there digging, man. It's like, holy shit. 
Oh, is there anything that's like more terrifying than falling into freezing water? Oh, that's terrifying as hell, man. He's like struggling. The ice is still breaking. He's kicking. And it's still breaking. Oh. Yeah. We'll have the link on the website so you can check it out and, and watch for yourself. And uh, hopefully you're sitting in front of a nice toasty fireplace while you're watching it because it uh, it makes you feel cold just, just seeing the video. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. But uh, also makes you wonder why the hell's a guy on some thin ice with his snowmobile. So gotta check yourself. Too many fosters. That's it, man. Too many PBRs. PBRs. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up the old ski news for the week. So now on to our main topic. We uh, had a um, we had someone reach out to us a few weeks ago um, from the U.S. Ski Pole Company. They're out in Sheboygan, Michigan, and they wanted to have us interview their founder, Andy Liebner. And we got a chance to talk to Andy today. He started the company. He is a former um, Nordic skier at the University of Northern Michigan, um, Northern Michigan University. Um, he has degrees in coaching and nutrition, and he was actually in Pyeongchang. And he was coaching a a actually rather well-known or became well-known at the Olympics uh, skier from Mexico, Herman Madrazo. So we had a chance to talk to Andy today, both Mario and I. And it was really, it was inspiring. It was interesting. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun because he, you know, kind of like we talked to JN last week from Lift Leash. You know, he, he saw a, an area in the market, in the industry that wasn't being fulfilled the way he had wanted it to be, did everything he could to try to help other companies and said, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself and went out and created this company. And in five years has a, a pretty formidable company that's competing with the, the big, the big guys, but they're doing everything here in the U S everything is manufactured here. Everything is produced, designed. And uh, it was really fun to talk to him. So uh, we hope you guys enjoy the interview. So here it is, Andy Liebner from U.S. Ski Pole Company. All is now being recorded. Oh. So how you doing, Andy? I'm doing well. Just uh, catching up with work since I've been gone. But uh, yeah, enjoying the, the day. Yeah, it's nice. been a... Uh, it's been a, how has it been since uh, being in Pyeongchang? Oh, just uh, just amazing. You know, just a comparison of the Asian countries versus ours. And, um, you know, just taking a, a step back to realize what other people are, uh, what the cultures are like and things. It's pretty cool. What would you think, uh, like, I guess, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the Nordic skiing culture like over there in Asia? Uh, it's not really uh, prevalent. I, I wouldn't say um, they they um, they don't really have Nordic skiing on their high priority list. Um, mm-hmm. I think they only had one one skier in in each of the races. Um, they didn't field a relay team. It's not it's not one of their um, primary sports. Is that because of the terrain more, or is it just uh, culturally it just hasn't 
it never was, I guess, you look at like the Nordic countries, Norway. And so, you know, they, they skiing was just a way of living and hunting and, and just transportation. I guess they just, where they lived, I guess that didn't seem necessary in the, in the past. Yeah, and they haven't had the culture um, just uh, with the races around and uh, the equipment hasn't been available. Um, they're not a real mountainous country um, for Alpine. Obviously, Alpine brings the Nordic venues um, and greater grooming. So um, without a, a greater Alpine system, there's not going to be a Nordic system to follow. Well, it's pretty cold there, though, right? It's like, uh, from what I heard, that was one of the coldest Olympics on record, right? Yeah, yeah, the first five or six days um, into the games, it was just just ridiculously cold with the wind chill. Um, wind was blowing every direction and just super cold. So it makes it hard for snow to stay when it's always blowing around. Oh. You know, um, it's it's not something that uh, people don't like to exercise outside um, because <laughs> it is so cold and windy. So the indoor sports are a little more easy for them to participate in. Yeah, I guess too with the Olympics, being a you know an observer during that kind of wind and uh, and cold is, is even tougher than being an athlete. Yeah, yeah, I have to stand out there and bear the elements. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this was quite a uh, quite a Winter Olympics for for U.S. Nordic skiing, huh? Yeah, it's to be expected though. You know, the U.S. has been coming up more and more in the recent years, and um, we are hoping for more medals than we got. But we uh, were happy with the medals we did get, and they're already planning the road to the next Olympics. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So I have to so, say uh, one of the most exciting races I saw out of any Olympic or out of any sport was that uh, women's relay where they won the gold. <laughs> that finished. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, you could you could just see that that they were doing. Um, giving every last bit of effort to, to make that happen. Like, there's no doubt that Jesse Diggins didn't have that in her, you know, in, in her mind, um, in her life, years and years of training for that moment. And uh, Keegan as well. It's almost like Keegan was able to give the energy to Jesse to make sure that she got the extra foot in front of the line, um, you know, to win that yeah, gold. It, it was Keegan's last race. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was it was it was exciting, and then having the commentators, you know, on obviously on NBC, just the way they were so into it too. I mean, it just it really transferred. I know I still get kind of goosebumps thinking about it because it was such a a monumental, you know, ending to that race. It was uh, it was fantastic. I mean, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that we have uh, this the team sprint as an event that didn't used to exist in the past. You know, and if you if you consider or compare the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics, um, you know the U.S. has dominated um, in the relays and and uh, in a lot of the sprinting events, more of the sprinting than ever in distance with uh, track and field. And um, it's just no, you know, it's no comparison now when when you see our, the first events that we're doing better at um, and earning medals with is sprinting. Yeah, you know, it does make sense. That's a good point. Track and field. Mm-hmm. So now your company, you are the founder, you are the head of a United States Ski Pole Company. Mm-hmm. And um, do you want to give a little bit of a, 
little bit of history. I know you've you've got a a, a storied ski racing career, and and now you have this company. Do you want to share a little bit on on how it how it came to be? Sure. So basically, the question is why why make ski poles? Why make ski poles in America? Why bother when there's already an existing product in the market? Um, my first reaction is, uh, or first response to that is that I love to ski, but uh, I very much like to ski with good equipment and it's comfortable. And I know everyone's probably experienced um, biking and um, sitting on an uncomfortable bike seat. You know, it's, it's very painful and, and nobody wants to continue to ride a bike that they can't even sit on. So I look at that as a, a ski pole is one thing that you have to connect with your hand, and that's their main means of propulsion for cross-country. So if, if your hands and your feet aren't comfortable, you're not going to be enjoying yourself out there and on the, on the snow and the course and especially racing. Um, you can't give it your best effort. And um, so I, I created the, the ski pole company to make a better product that was going to be successful um, to cover the, the points of comfort and the grips and straps and um, that was our target and that's been the biggest selling point from the beginning um, you know based off the passion of what we need to cover in the market to help other people find their passion in the sport and to grow the sport and support it you know it, it all started as like a whirlwind um, that snowballed into an avalanche <laughs> And right. advanced into a contagious avalanche um, that uh, just kept growing and growing and growing, and, and we seem to grow about 20% every year. Oh, um, wow! Shows, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, That's great. It's, it's been an amazing trip. So uh, right. now I'm I'm, yeah. I'm mixing my po my coaching passion with my my business, and I'm going around to local ski clubs and offering free clinics. Um, to increase their level of technique and, and training advice and nutrition because so I've got a degree in, in uh, coaching and nutrition and uh, giving that off uh, freely to help them do better in the sport and uh, you know it's a way of getting get, you know getting our product into uh, people's hands and then they they discover um, that there's a better product out there that we've made here um, all at the same time. Oh, that's a great way to get the, uh, you know, the, the product uh, available to people and, and educate people about, you know, the difference in products because I tell you what, you know, I never really thought too much about ski poles in general and it's, it's kind of like there's so many different types. It's like it's it's nice to, to hear, like, you know, what you're looking, you know, why you're looking to um, make a better ski pole. Like, you know, um, I guess what's interesting to me is, is you know, the difference of a good – well-made ski pole makes versus a not well-made ski pole, right? Oh yeah, and and I could go all day on the advantages that we have in our products, but you know, just to cut it real short here, you know, the grip and strap is the connection with your hand, um, but the other end of the pole is the, is the basket, and if you're punching through the snow because it's soft or if it's um, powder or if it's just crust on the top, and then you're you're um, you're punching through, um, that's product failure. You know, just like uh, riding your bike in the sand, you know, like it's going to sink right to the bottom and you're going to basically get off your bike and walk. So um, we make we make a, a really quick exchange um, or a quick tip system that, that can exchange in just seconds, which nobody else has in the market. So that allows you to use your poles in all conditions, not just oh. some conditions and having to go into the shop to 
to heat up, a, uh, you know, the glue to get the basket size off, you know, to switch your basket sizes. And it's just, um, you know, it's one of those things that, hey, nobody ever done it before, and, and nobody's going to do it because, quite frankly, the people that are making the, the all the other brands of poles, they don't know anything about skiing, as, or as I do. And I listen to other coaches and other athletes, and I, I, I ask them what are the failures of other people's stuff, and we fix all their problems. And we're going to continue to fix all their problems. <laughs> you know, that seems to be the the way that the greatest products are created when they come from a specific need. Uh, we were chatting with another guy last week. This kid, he's a freshman at University of Vermont, and he created this uh, this product called the the Lift Leash, which is it's just you know it's a, a strap for your phone that connects to your jacket so if you drop it while you're you know on a lift or skiing or whatever you won't mm-hmm. lose it and it was directly from an event where he dropped his phone and him and his buddies were searching for hours to find this phone so he's like you know what i need to make a product that will keep this from happening so this sounds like it, it, the exact same motivation that you had because you are an athlete you are a skier you know exactly what you need and what will make you better so you said i'm going to make this yeah, and, you know, and to, to be honest, too, in the, in the past, I'd actually given some of these advantages to, which is now our competition, the companies that sponsored me, I'd said, hey, can you make this change? And I told everybody that I could from from my network, and everybody agreed that it was a great idea, but it just was never going to happen because the system was so thick to get to the people that actually make the change or the people that own the molds to make the change in the tooling, who's going to pay for it. And my voice wasn't big enough then. But you know what? It is now because now some of our com- biggest competitors in the world are making policy changes to their warranties. They're making color changes to their products. They're making quick-release um, systems to try to keep up with us. I mean, that they're, is so cool. They're, they're scared. I mean, they're multi-million-dollar companies, and they're they're looking at me. They're watching my t- YouTube videos. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a five-year-old company, and just. You know, sitting in a small town in Michigan. I mean, they that's, what, that's what being make, a big big company can do. Though. You get complacent. You know, you're like you're watching your every single penny. It's like, well, it's going to cost us a thousand dollars to change this, so let's just keep doing what we're doing. It works until it doesn't. Yep. <laughs> yep. And and so with the companies that I that I was sponsored by, they didn't make the change. I even applied for a job about seven years ago with a large multi-million dollar company to be one of their product developers and a salesperson. They turned me down. So now we're just earning market share and, t- and replacing their stuff on the shelves in America. And that was Canada. just fuel for you, right? Fuel and motivation. <laughs> like, dude, you had your chance. You would have had me. I would have been your best guy to help you, you know, streamline this industry. And, and um, Man, you know, right. nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I told the reps, I'm like, hey, come work for me. Yeah. You know, you want to make you want to make good stuff in America and work for an American company rather than bringing in Chinese. Yeah, work for us. You know, don't compete against me. Just work with me. Yeah, I think that kind of uh, people's opinions too have shifted a bit. Where they, you know, they, people are willing to pay a little bit more if they know it's built better and it's built in America. Yeah, well, it's, that's the funny thing about paying more too. Our prices in comparison are actually less than our competition. Oh, really? Yeah, we price them right, so we'd sell more. And we want to get people a good stuff, you know, a good product without having them to, you know, save up all year, make it affordable. And we can do that because we don't have four chains of, um, you know, four hands in the cookie jar before I get to them and user. You know, we're, we're manufacturing it here 
and we ship it directly to either the retail shop or directly to a team, or um, you know, you can order online. So, and that's um, at usskipoles.com. Usskipoles.com. Yeah, make it simple. You know, part of our, our company name was just to make sure that nobody had any question that we we're ever making anything in China, mm-hmm. and that's all of our competition is, is over there. So. Um, U.S. key poles can't can't go wrong, you know. Even though we do sell well in the Canada, um, we do uh, have our, our graphics with Maple Leafs instead of the Stars and Stripes. <laughs> so, nice easy okay. swap, right? Yeah, yeah. Now we're putting uh, custom names on the product too, so you can order your pole with our graphic or their graphic or or uh, a team graphic, and then every individual athlete or person doesn't matter your level, you, you can get your name put on a pole for an extra twenty dollars. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Yeah, and nobody's ever going to do that. So, you know, that's that's just another leg up that we have in our competition, and they're going to try to figure out how to keep up. Americans leading the way. That's right. So now where is your – Oh, sorry. Uh, You do a two-year warranty on all your polls? Yep, two-year warranty, no questions asked. Oh, that's great. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah, Americans love their warranty policies. So we want to make sure that that wasn't going to be a question. Because first off, you know, a product like this, people have to believe in it and trust in it to to buy it. Um, it's something that they're depending on. And they use, you know, tens of thousands of, of strokes in a race. You have to uh, rely on that that's going to, that's going to work. And uh, so that warranty should give them, or it should give them the, the trust and reliability. And so far it's, it's been working. Some people still question it because they haven't seen as many out there. But uh, in all reason, um, you know, they wouldn't recognize our brand because we're doing so many co-branding um, polls now. So it often they might recognize a shop brand on our poll, but not realize that we actually made that for them. Oh, that's actually good that you do that because uh, some companies resist doing, like, the custom for another, you know, another brand, you know. Branding it for the shop is, is great. You know, they love that too. Yeah, you know, on their end too. You know, Americans are always looking at at um, at uh, you know getting their local awareness of, of their team or their shop. And um, if they bring in another product, it's like, well, which which one are they going to sell? You know, bikes is a, is a good example, and there's a lot of different bike companies. They bring in another bike company with new features. You know, why would they sell one over another? You know, and then, you know, when a customer comes in, which one are they going to lead them to? Whereas if we give them the house brand, they know what they're going to get for advertising out of it. So they're more likely to sell our poll because it has their advertising piece on it. Right. And I guess, too, you know, an event like the Olympics, I guess there was only certain brands that were approved. I don't know if it's by the IOC or the, the USOC to uh, to have their their brand displayed, and I'm sure you have to pay a, a pretty penny to be one of those companies. Did you run into that problem at all with the Olympics? No, um, I was there, um, number one, as a coach, and I made my own athlete his his custom branded poles, um, and I wasn't there to represent the company. I was there to help the athlete that I've coached to his level okay. to get there. Um, so, I mean, I... I I really was proud of him, and that's that's my purpose of being there. Do you want to give him uh, a shout-out? You know. Yeah, Herman Madrazo, you did it. <laughs> All right. Congratulations. Yeah, he, uh, I taught, uh, in 13 months from never skiing before to Olympic qualification, 
Oh, really? Oh, wow. wow. It was amazing. Yeah, they have different qualifying standards, but still the standards aren't easy. And coming from a country with, with no snow and uh, being 43 years old, it, you know, he had a lot of challenges to, you know, achieve and accomplish and balance. And, you know, I didn't realize until after working with him that that uh, when you grow up in a winter community um, or a climate, you uh, actually gain a lot of neuromuscular uh, um Benefits just from you know walking from your door in your house to your car. You're wa- you're walking on slippery surfaces and ice, and uh, you gain the ability to um, you know judge your traction and, and your body just adapts. Whereas if you've never you know walked on ice before, um, that's a difficulty um, more so than, than people who grew up in warmer or in colder climates. So interesting. Yeah, I never know. thought about that. Yeah, putting on skis and ice skates and things for. For uh, those you know those people that have never been experienced on on slippery surfaces, it's really difficult. It's a lot, a lot harder you know, challenge for them. Oh, you know what? Now that you, you I I didn't even put two and two together, so I just I just looked him up, uh, Herman. Yeah, I remember watching his video of him. He was like he was like the happiest person when he was finishing. I mean, it was such a huge accomplishment for him. So yeah. how did he um how did you hook up with him to be his coach? I'd coached uh a Peruvian um, prior to the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the publicity from him uh, led to a lot of other uh, people from countries with no snow, and they wanted to get on that Olympic dream um, story come true, too. So Like the shirtless one, Tonga guy, right? Yeah, yeah, and I got <laughs> to know him well, too. We shared a wax room with him. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, yeah, we made some YouTube videos together. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, you can um, – actually, I haven't published those yet, but um, they'll be online soon. So he called me up, you know, with an Olympic dream um, about 13 months before the Olympics of this um, the Korean event going on. And so he said, hey, Andy, I want to go to the Olympics. I'm like, okay, yeah, five years, we can we can do it, no problem. <laughs> and he's like, no, next year. <laughs> I uh, – I kind of shook my head, and I'm like, you know, you've got a long ways to go, and especially if you're not um, acquainted to the winter climate. Yeah, right. Um, how to do this, but, you know, he barely he barely pulled it off. Had he had any sort of skiing, either Alpine or Nordic, before this experience? He did go to Canada um, on a trip once when he was in high school, <laughs> and he did some some Alpine. Um, wow. You know, it's... it's Intro, um, but that was over 20 years ago. Oh wow! And that's closer right. to 25. Yeah, that's yeah. not exactly uh, Olympic qualifying training there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was a um, a seasoned triathlete and marathon runner, so he had the endurance, he had the background. Um, I just had to get his balance and his technique down. He had all the the muscles and lungs to carry him. But did you do a lot of training uh, dry land, or did you have him come up um, to Michigan to do training there? He trained in Michigan a, a little bit. We we traveled around to different countries and uh, different parts of the snow belt in America. Um, yeah, that was was a lot of traveling we had to do um, to be able to to get to, you know chasing the snow. Sometimes we didn't have adequate snow in Michigan early on, so we had, went on to went on to different parts in you know, Canada and even went over to Iceland last April for a few weeks. And then yeah, I guess a lot of that. 
Were you guys traveling with that uh, Pita Tafatufa guy? The um... Yeah, Pita, you know, from Tonga, he he didn't come into the picture until the last month, right before their final qualifying races. Um, I was not on the trip with with Pita um, for their last few races. So, um, oh, because I know they had a lot of pictures yeah. together, and I was like, I, I didn't know if they trained together at all. Or... I think they did at the last the last uh, few weeks to the last month. Um, I wasn't there. I had my business to run, so. Um, yeah. You know, he got him to where he needed to be, and then he was doing the final races alone. That's just got to be tough, yeah, because he's 13 months. I mean, a majority of the training is, you know, when it's summer here in, you know, the North North America. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good time to train, though. You know, you can get really good quality and with consistent uh, resistance. Mm-hmm. So roller skiing is a great way of, of training. Running with poles on the trail is, is extremely difficult, and we did a lot of both of those. And uh, it's interesting, oh, okay. too, is, like, when we started in January 2017, we, uh, we were on snow right away, and we skied all the way until mid-April. And uh, most people on um, the racing circuit, they take some time off, they recover, they set their training up for the next year, then they have some, you know, longer, slower-distance stuff uh, all through the month of May, and then they start to ramp up and do their, their peak cycles. And we didn't have time for that, so... We just have been going hard the entire year. Intervals, time trials, you know, technique work, day in, day out, multiple times a day. It, 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 there was no time to, to really back off. We got minimal recovery, um, but he was used to those long workouts. I mean, he was used to six to eight hour um, durations of, of time for training. So doing two to three hour workouts and more explosive stuff was it was a different animal for him, but he was he was ready for that, and his body had been um, used to the abuse and recovery. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so I in, think it's in September this last year, we went down to Argentina for a few weeks. Um, there were some events down there, and that was a, a good test too. So after all summer of of uh, being on dry land, jumping right in, into winter uh, was was pretty interesting and, and seeing how he had had uh, improved um from there you know there's a little cross or uh, um some some technical stuff um doesn't cross over so well from roller skiing to skiing but uh for the most part he uh he, he really advanced that was a big jump oh i bet I yeah and that- go from you know n- you know not a not a skier to a world world level competing skier. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. In that short period of time, yeah. Now, do yeah. You, your company, you guys also manufacture roller skis? No, no, we distribute the roller skis that are... Oh, just distribute the, them. Okay. The, 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 most of the metal is made in the U.S., and then they're assembled in Canada. The company's Canadian. That's, uh, that's the name brand for it, so we work with them as Rumble Sport. Okay. And... The nice thing about them is that they have the only shock absorber in the, in the front and the back of the roller skis. So um, my athlete was using them all, all summer long in Texas. Oh, very cool. See, I, I come from a, uh, a roller hockey and ice hockey background. So uh, I got into, you know, alpine skiing for the most part. And I'm always looking for a new, you know, a new something to do in the summertime. And mm-hmm. uh, the roller skiing thing has me, has me very curious. 
I've always wanted yeah. to try it. Well, if you ever make your way up to uh, Sheboygan, Michigan, I've got a demo fleet. I got some extra boots, and poles. Beautiful. Put you on skis and send you out in the parking lot. That would be great. Okay. Have you guys ever considered? I know you. You know you. You decided to go the the ski pole route. Have you decided or thought about doing uh, custom skis as well? No, we'll probably never make skis. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different oh, animal. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, uh, you know, I'm curious uh, about the team that you work with. So I know uh, Amy uh, reached out to us. I guess she works with you. And uh, she was very, very, um, you know, spoke very highly of you. And she was, she was very nice to deal with. Uh, you know, how about a little bit about the team that you work with? Sure. Yeah, our, our staff is, um, I'd say, the best. We've, we've got a really good crew here. Um, all local people that we've we found in the uh, community to do a specific job. And we frequently go through our strengths and weaknesses and shift duties around if we find that uh, someone else can do a little bit better and, you know, one person's not doing something as, as good. So that way everybody comes in and can do what they do well and enjoys their job. It, it's really important to to feel good about what you do and um, be able to go home at the end of the day and just look back and say, this is what I accomplished today. Um, you know, I, I've yeah, always been yeah. a big activist to, to put a paper on your um, above your bed that, that reads, what will I accomplish today? And before you put your feet on the floor, you think of at least one, at least one positive thing that will make a, a bigger impact. And not to put your feet on the floor until you've thought of that and you're going to accomplish that. You figure out how you're going to do it. So at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, you look back up and you, you, you know, check to make sure you got it done. You know, ask yourself. So that's, that's the way of, you always make progress. Every day is a progression from the day before. I can see why you're a fantastic coach because uh, <laughs> I'm inspired to put that up on our bed. That's kind of what we do with this podcast. You know, we started out just kind of messing around, and we're just uh, we're slowly just trying to to get better at it, and to find interesting people to talk to, and to make it something compelling to listen to. So, so that's uh, that's some pretty great advice. Excellent, excellent. I love it. Find find the, the people that can give someone what they need to improve their own lives and in different ways. It's great. Just like you did, find a, a niche in the market where you can create a better product and go for it. Yep. Well, thank you. It's been All a right. big, big process here. <laughs> yeah. Anything else uh, you want to add before we wrap it up? No. Uh, thanks for the time, and I appreciate you calling me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, and thank Amy for reaching out to us. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate chatting with you. And is uh, you want to give any more information out where people can reach you? No, you know, if you're interested in, in me coming to do a, a clinic, it's complimentary. I'll, I'll do it free. Um, just look us up online at usgpol.com and and send an inquiry about me coming to do a demo clinic. I'll, I'll, I'll give you free technique. I even bring roller skis and poles, so I just have to bring your boots and helmet. Very cool. Wow, very nice. All right, well, Andy, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Great, thanks. Have a good day. All right, have a great day. Bye-bye.
I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. You can check out all the information for the U.S. Ski Pole Company and Andy at SkiBumPodcast.com. Under the Ropes. First off, the guy who photographs luxury planes for mega billionaires. Damn. So this is the story of Nick Gleis, who... I guess, you know, is one of those people who you, you think you're going to end up doing something in this world and life takes a crazy turn and you end up doing something pretty different. Nick started out his career photographing. Uh, he was originally trained in landscape photography by Ansel Adams. And then he fell into aviation photography and now has somehow got caught up doing the interiors of private jets for like the mega rich Man, this looks awesome. Yeah, and he talked about how, you know, there's a <laughs> Gulf State Royals and Russian oligarchs. So there's some uh, some crazy multi-billionaires that he's doing the work for. And, you know, a lot of times he says he doesn't really think about the folks, like what they do. He just sort of, you know, talks to them as people and, and listens to them and, and, and works with them. And uh, it's it's a great quote, and we you know Mario and I talked about this before. And he's like, the question that was posed to him was, "Tell me about the world's richest people." And he says, "I find that the super rich are generally very nice people. They're not condescending assholes as some American celebrities are. <laughs> the Kardashians, for example, those people are very rich, but they're not like rich that I deal with. They're paupers in comparison." <laughs> Damn. The rich that I deal with are very formal. They're very private. That's awesome. I don't know what's more amazing. These photographs that he takes, which you could tell they're high quality. They're very good photographs. But like the content, like I'm looking at these planes and they're freaking incredible. Yeah, these are big planes too. This isn't like a, he mentioned too, this isn't like a little Gulf Stream or anything. Like these are like full size, you know, 747 type planes. God damn. It's like Air Force One style thing. Yeah, I mean, in these pictures, yeah, it looks like a beautiful office building somewhere, some of these rooms. I mean, the bedrooms, I mean, these are bedrooms you see in a mansion. There's one they show, it looks like it's a spaceship because everything is very silver. You know, the walls, the, the, the interior, the couches, the tables. I mean, just notice like the, the artwork on the walls too is very cool looking in a lot of these. Yeah. A lot, some of it's like very intricate and crazy. The carpets are like nice. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. There, uh, there's some pretty, pretty amazing pictures in here. It's even worth just taking a look at the photos and just imagining what it would be like to travel in that, in that way, instead of being, you know, shoehorned into a, a plane and being x-rayed and violated and farted on the whole time. There's a the picture of this of that. bathroom that's bigger than most people's like rooms. And it's like, this is on an airplane. Like, can you imagine traveling like that? This is the one picture. I mean, I think the, uh, the silverware and the, uh, the flatware is worth more than probably a regular commercial plane. <laughs> The gold, gold forks and gold plates. Man, they have a crazy office, like 
the few offices that he has pictures of, it's like, is that in like a really fancy building? It's like, no, that's his airplane. It's like, how much time do you spend on that desk to justify the, uh, the expense? I don't know, but now you could travel for like a hundred days of the year and not give a shit. You're traveling in that thing, you know? Seriously. And I love to have like guest, like desk, uh, guest chairs next to it too. Yeah. You would be having two people just kind of meandering in there for an interview. <laughs> While you're flying to D- Dubai or Singapore or something. Yeah, like that one boardroom too. It's like, yes, we're flying out. Let's have a board meeting uh, on the jet because when we land, uh, I'm going to do a bunch of fun shit and not see you people. How about that? Oh, yeah. That's right. There's a picture of like eight, eight, seven or eight chairs right there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Let's have a board meeting while we're flying. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, he does talk about a lot of, yeah, he's talking about how private they are and it's just crazy. There's rich and then there's rich. These guys are off the grid. Nobody even talks about them so rich. They're like, so rich, you don't even know who they are. That's the way to do it, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the photographs are great. You could tell, you know, vantage point, like everything and the way it's all like put together and, and staged and all like you definitely tell it's, it's great photography, but like, I'm just still amazed too at like, wow, how lavish these things are. Oh yeah. That's yeah. This like. is definitely worth going to the website and checking out the link to the photos. Keep on podcast.com. It'll be there. Yeah. Damn. All right. Next up, we got some crazy shit that's going on in the world today. Um, well, this is what people do with the people who have these sort of jets. This is the next step for them, right? <laughs> no, absolutely not. The Kardashians <laughs> that can't afford jets like that, this is the next step for them. So um, Huffington Post interviewed, did an interview with uh, Dr. Matthew Shulman, um, who's a plastic surgeon. And he said in his, uh, you know, the interview was, was describing how patients are asking to look like their Snapchat filtered selfies. So... <laughs> As messed up as it might seem, I guess people are coming to him and other, you know, surgeons and they're saying, look, I want to look like my Snapchat filtered selfie. Um, you know, the one with the crown of flowers or the smooth out white skin, um, make my eyes look larger, the lips look fuller. Um it's crazy. So he's saying uh there's a lot of uh, lip fillers and eyelid surgeries going on because like people are seeing that you know this version of the snapchat filter on their face that they're like oh this is really cool i want to get surgery now to look like that so it's pretty freaking crazy to talk about um yeah man he's he's saying how how influenced they are by social media and snapchat now so it's kind of uh not only are they looking to get a lot of viewers on social media but now their regular picture, they want to get just as many views. So that's why they're, they're, they're kind of like, that's some of the motivation that's going on. He said, it's a, a trend factor in an ongoing going discussion on how the selfie culture and ability to Photoshop ourselves at the press of a button accepts, uh, affects self-esteem and body image. So, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, <laughs> look, 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 look like cartoons, you know, like a lot of those, you know, uh, I mean, look at like a Jessica Rabbit or something. You know, like I'm gonna no, it's kind of a weird reference, but that's sort of you know we when we create have the ability to create cartoons or you know anything that's not exactly human but still pretty close. There's certain things that you know 
artists will always accentuate on. Look at comic books, superheroes. You know, everything is is the idealized person, the idealized male or female. Yeah. And now that we have this sort of augmented reality that we can use, we can actually see us, not just this theoretical, oh, this is Superman, you know, this is Wonder Woman. We can actually see what we would look like with just a couple of, you know, tweaks on the dial. And I think for people who are have low self-esteem or are very superficial, it can become very dangerous. And this well, is why you're having all these, these crazy surgeries that want to take place. Well, it also affects their esteem because now they're doing the Snapchat selfie. People are saying how good they look. And then they look in the mirror and they're like, oh, fuck, I'm not that person. Like, uh, I don't look anything like that. You know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, it's like a letdown. And I think it, it hurts your self-esteem. I don't know, fuck it. He should just be like, I'm going to make everybody look like the little dancing hot dog. And how about that? How about that <laughs> Snapchat? Or start like giving I, girls the uh, the dog nose and, and ears. I gave you dog oh, nose. Filter. I'm sorry. I thought that was the filter you wanted. Oh, you didn't want the little hot dog dancing guy. I gave you one of those. I hate Snapchat filters so much. They drive me crazy. I mean, all these like girls who think they look hot with the dog face and ears. You look stupid. Some of them it looks cool, but after a no, while, it gets it old. Looks yeah. dumb. It always looks dumb. Don't yeah. give them. Don't let them think that because then they they think everything they do is the best. It, it looks hot if you're in a porno, but if you're not in a porno, no, it's not. I don't know what kind of pornos you watch and I don't really want to know. <laughs> See, there you go. Just leave it out. Then again, Let's cue see. the hot dog guy coming in. <laughs> it's a hot dog coming in. <laughs> it's the porn with the dancing hot dogs, you know. <laughs> Speaking of dancing hot dogs, strippers are now starting to accept Bitcoin tattoos or they're starting to set Bitcoin using tattoos for tipping. Damn. So, you know, we've talked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, you know, more and more on this podcast. And it turns out that at one particular um, gentleman's club in Las Vegas called Legends Room, customers can scan temporary tattoos on strippers and then tip them in cryptocurrency. That's wild. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So the girls are getting these temporary tattoos and then you can, you know, as if you have, um, uh, I like a Bitcoin wallet on your phone, it has a QR code scanner in the wallet and you can use that to send money to that, that, uh, barcode, that, that QR code. Um, the one thing that I found I think is kind of funny is, you know, with Bitcoin transactions, it usually takes up to 10 minutes for the transaction to clear. So I wonder if you were tipping a girl, would she have to wait for the transaction to clear before actually, you know, if you were purchasing a dance or whatever. Oh girl, just keep tipping like, like bam, bam, bam. Would you tip and then have to wait 10 minutes until to confirm it and then come back? Now, because I doubt that they're running some sort of Bitcoin, Bitcoin full node in the dressing room where they're checking their transactions. You never know. You never know. I don't know. You know, yeah, that's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm saying the guy who owns it seems like he's pretty on top of things and pretty uh, techno technologically savvy. So maybe he's got a full node running and he can, they've got earpieces in and he's like, Hey, all right, Lexus, you can go give the guy a dance. His transaction just cleared. There you go. Or they may make you, um, do the tipping and then wait, you know, okay, wait two dances. And then you get, you know, you get your dance if it clears. Mm -hmm. 
wait the 10 minutes. Um, I'm just wondering though, so you have the QR code that you're scanning, you're tipping an account. Now, is that account the stripper's account or is it the club's account and they're giving the strippers just a cut of that? This mm-hmm. you don't know, right? That's an interesting point, yeah. See, now I'm just, this is this is the, the I don't know. Skeptic, no, this is skeptic good. In me, you know? That's how you should be questioning these things. Because if you're on a strip joint, you're maybe saying, look, you know, you pay the QR code for the dance. We'll give the, the, the girl or the guy, whatever kind of place it is, their cut of it. And then you get your dance and it's all done through Bitcoin or Ethereum. Or if you have something, you know, like Dash or like something that's ghetto, like, no, we don't oh, take coin. it. You're out of here. You got to get like the ghetto coin. No, no, we don't take that. Get the hell out of here. Oh, coin. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You get like thrown out of the club or some shit. Yo, man, but I got like $2 million in it. We don't take that shit. <laughs> you got to convert it, son. Yeah, this is, that's a, that's a good point though. Yeah. I wonder if they're, uh, yeah, like it's one general account or if it's all individuals. It's the first thing I'm looking for the scam. I'm looking for the, I'm looking for what, what's the deal that's running here. Find that angle. Yeah. So the guy um, who runs the club said he's been doing this for about a year and a half now. And you know what? I hope they have been. And hopefully, you know, these, you know, everyone who's involved here got in over a year ago because then they would have a, uh, a 10x return. And hopefully they saved some of the Bitcoin and didn't just convert it to cash right away yeah. because they could be in a, sitting in a pretty spot right now. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, what if a, a performer doesn't have an account or doesn't have a wallet, you know? they And now these girls can finally pay for college as they always say they would. Or I'm just doing this so I can pay for college. Exactly. Or if they don't have an account, see this, this is where the skeptic, it goes to the club and then they give them cash for, you know what I mean? They're, mm-hmm. they're not having an account and they're getting cash behind the scenes. So I don't know. And be, what, what, what rate are they using for the conversion? Are they using it at the moment? Are they using it at the time of the transaction? And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of different variables involved here. I, I think, um, uh, we have to do a little more research into this. May have to go fly out to Vegas. I was I actually an offsite meeting. Yeah, I was actually watching um, was it Orange County Choppers yesterday, and uh, they made this uh, this nice you know motorcycle. If anybody hasn't watched the show, they make these awesome motorcycles um, for you know people and events. And they had this one new. Uh, you have casino. to fight a few times during the episode too, right? Oh, they fight, they throw shit. There's always like a little drama. Um, but uh, they made this, uh, they made these two motorcycles for this new casino that opened out in Vegas. And I'm like, I haven't been to Vegas in so long. I didn't even know they opened up a new casino. Like, it's crazy. I feel so lost. So I think. Which one was it? Uh, it was like Al-Qaeda or something like that. It was an Asian theme. Uh, Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Oh, very different. Yeah. It was huge. It was like, and I'm trying to figure out what it used to be because there's like no, there's no space on the strip for like any new stuff. So they had to take over something and rebuild it, you know? Yeah. Interesting. I I think we should get put up and and go out there and let's see. Forum Casino. Investigate. What the hell was the name of it? Yeah, we got to figure out a way to get out there. That's another trip we got to go do. Vegas casinos. 
Buck Dragon, no, that's not it. Yeah, I'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, they were having this whole big thing. I'm like, what the hell casino is that? I don't know where that is. Isn't there, a, there's got to be some sort of skiing trade show in Reno, isn't there? Ooh. I think there would be. Then we could do a little, uh, a little skiing out there. I think we got to do a little recon. Yeah. Yeah. I'll figure it out. We'll figure this out. And then while we're out there, we might have to check out the club that takes uh, Bitcoin just for, you know, research purposes. Confirmation. Exactly. So, all right. And uh, last but not least, you know, speaking of uh, hot dogs again, this guy injected his dick with stem cells to try to make it bigger. So this is uh, Ben Greenfield is a cult figure among among fitness fanatics, which is a polite way of saying it, because I think we both looked at his Instagram account and some of the stuff he has online. He's like a fitness I would say he's like a guru, right? Cause he's like pushing the envelope of fitness. But as you look deeper in, it's like, there's a little, little bit, bunch of stuff. That's a little bit crazy. It's like on the little crazy spectrum of some of the stuff where he goes yeah, a little too like far. A, like a, a biohacker and life hacker. And yeah, it's like he there. goes there and then he goes a little too far, you know? He was on Joe Rogan's podcast. And yeah, there were certain things that I was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely with this guy. Then I'm just like, mm, he lost me. Yeah. <laughs> definitely like I, a man of extremes. Like I said to you, you hear part of the interview and you're like, oh, this guy's great. You tell your friends about him. And then all your friends are like, dude, the guy's a fucking wacko. What's going on? And then you, you research <laughs> and you're like, all right, well, he's got some cool stuff, but I don't agree with everything, you know, like, I don't know. But anyway, um, he, uh, you know, he's done stuff like, you know, monitoring his biometric data for insight and personal health. And he's been getting like, you know, he's got tons of Twitter followers, Facebook fans, YouTube subscribers. So it's great. Like, and he finds these hacks and it's pretty cool. Like, like the idea of pushing your body, pushing the envelope of what you can do to make your body better. Um, so it's kind of cool sitting on the outside looking at it and he's putting himself on the front line, I got to say. So um, the latest thing, one of the latest things he did is uh i think this is pretty recent on his uh on his uh instagram feed is he he subjected himself to a plate to platelet rich plasma injections stem cell injections and sound wave therapy now sound wave therapy i found out from reading his instagram account is something they use if you have uh, erectile dysfunction or if women have problems sexually I guess it's like vibrations that actually help revive and revitalize like the, your, your sexual organs to, to work better. Um, so he's doing all this and uh, I guess he's injecting his penis. There's a Florida clinic, a controversial Florida clinic, which I love how. Um, <laughs> is, anything, is anything not, uh, isn't everything in Florida pretty much controversial? Pretty much. I mean, and well, this is stem cells. I mean, I, I just moved to Florida and when I was up North, you're talking New York, New Jersey, Vermont, Connecticut. I spent a good amount of time, Pennsylvania, never saw a single stem cell clinic. I come down here, just riding down the road. I see like four or five huge stem cell places. And I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, there's like all these places and, you know, talking to my cousin, he's like, yeah, I had back surgery and they injected me with stem cells and it helped the healing like immensely. I was like, really? So there's, 
there's definitely some things they're pushing here, which are, which are good. And uh, I guess this clinic, this one clinic that he went to unintentionally blinded three patients in a clinical trial of an unproven nice. stem cell therapy. So he went nice. to these guys and uh, get, he's getting his dick injected with stem cells from them. So I, I don't know about that, but um, so he's saying he wanted to go from good to great. <laughs> Whatever, I'll take his word on that. Uh, he wanted to get bigger. And uh, he's saying, guys, without erectile infunction, he, he's like, you know, that's why he would want to do this without having erectile dysfunction is because he wants to get a little bit bigger. Um, but what they do is they isolate stem cells from his own body, fat cells, and then they centrifuge it, and then they um, inject it into the meat of the tissue and they're saying that um, early stage studies show that uh, stem cells show promise in treating erectile dysfunction. Um, but I guess he's trying to help see if it helps with the size. So um, very interesting. I, I saw something on Vice. Uh, Vice has this season. They actually have, uh, you know, they do two parts of all their shows. And one of the parts of one of their shows is, uh, I think it's called like living forever or something like that. And they talk about like, um, uh, where is the, uh, Osaka, I think in Japan is like all the people live in like really crazy long lives. So they're doing studies there and they have this one place, this one doctor, he does stem cell stuff. He actually injects himself every day with his own stem cells and or every week a few times and uh he says that's going to be the it's going to be proven out to be the thing that that keeps him living well past 100 i was like that's pretty crazy i know about injecting your penis with it but hey so that's what you want to do man well this guy also ben greenfield he talks about how he's you know just a big believer in stem cells in general and that he had injuries from in his knee and in his hip and that they helped him to recover yeah. And then he's also injected him, um, I guess, into his arm. And so by the time he is 40 in a few years, he hopes to have attained a biological age of 25. Wow. Yeah, that's what this guy on that uh, vice thing was talking about, too. They talk about biological age and how like young your body is compared to the wear and tear of like a normal person at your same age. And that's where you mm -hmm. get like a biological age. So I don't know. Something to be said for that. Um, I, I kind of believe it could work. I mean, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And this, and this guy also talks about how there's a lot of things that are, you know, kind of fighting you know, modern, modern assailants, he called it, including like cell phones and autism and erectile dysfunction, all things that, you know, can cause men to have problems in their, uh, their manhood area. So it's, it's funny how like sometimes, you know, certain things that come off as being superficial and perverse end up leading to results that are much greater and uh, much improved. Or it works in the other way. Like, you know, I guess it's how Viagra was created, right? They were trying to find something for uh, some it's sort of... Right, uh, or something like that. Was it cholesterol? Like a blood thickening? Oh, was it? Trying to find, I think, I can't remember, but there was, they were testing it to do something with, you know, blood related. And they're like, oh, well, it actually does this. And they're like, oh, well, we can market it. Is this way easier than we can market it as a, uh, you know, blood thinning or whatever. 
was a prevalent side effect in the drug. And they're like, hey, it's a drug for that instead. Very positive side effect. Yes. <laughs> like, but I've had a heart up. for four days. Is that, is that normal? <laughs> My blood is flowing perfectly. Exactly. Yeah, this is the, like I said, you know, I heard him on Joe Rogan's podcast and yeah, there was moments where I was like, this guy really is onto something. And then there was times where I was like, this yeah. guy's a little bit out there. Yeah. He's, you know, he's a very interesting guy and he was talking about his whole life. He, he was like homeschooled and graduated when he was like, you know, from high school when he was like 14 and went to college right away. And wow. Like, yeah. You know, partied too hard and kind of flunked out and just a very interesting guy. And, uh, just has a very interesting approach to life and the way he lives. I mean, he's, a, he's like a, you know, a real athlete too. I think he does a lot of like, uh, you know, triathlons and, and those like the Spartan races, you know, and Spartan stuff. races, like those kind of things. So he's, uh, wow. Definitely trying to, to maximize his life, which I find, you know, it's, it's inspiring. Um, yeah. but again, he does, uh, he does go and take things to the, upteen level which yeah you know what i'm glad he's doing it i'm exactly. glad i don't have to do it exactly and uh it's it's cool to just to learn from all these people doing all these different things so it's like hey, keep doing like, your thing man we get the benefit of him doing the self-instituted human trial which we don't have to do you know i saw another show on uh what was it south korea is like the top place for the most penis enlargement surgeries or something like that. I think it was another vice or another show. And it might've been a Netflix special or something like that. And it was like, this guy was like, I guess he had a small penis and he's like trying to, trying to look for like doctors and like doing research on it. And he went to, I think it was South Korea. And he said the industry there for like penis enlargements is like, astronomically incredible. You wouldn't believe the amount of money that's spent on that. I'm like, if this thing works, boom, they're going right over, right overseas, overseas to do this. Gangnam style. Gangnam style. Crazy <laughs> man. Yeah. This guy that was doing the, uh, the documentary, he stopped at the point where they said there's a semi proven within the, I guess the there's a subculture community of people that have gotten penis enlargements where these it's almost like a witch doc witch doctorish thing where they inject his penis with like this old these oils and he's like he saw the needles like no I'm not gonna get that done. <laughs> he was like you know say when these dude two dudes show up at, to his hotel room with like this needle like wrapped in like some cloth. It's like, yeah, that's pretty shady looking. It's like a trombone case. Yeah, you're not you're not taking that anywhere near my Johnson. <laughs> so hey, I kudos to him, man. You bring sharp objects near your Johnson, it's a pretty brave thing to do. Yes, indeed. So thank you, Ben Greenfield, for helping us learn. Yeah. Being hey, our crash test dummy. Be interesting to find out if it works. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that about wraps up the old podcast for the week. Please check us out. Send us an email, skibonepodcast at gmail.com. Our website, skibonepodcast.com. Check us out on the socials, twitter.com slash skibonepodcast, facebook.com slash skibonepodcast, instagram.com slash skibonepodcast. We are on Pinterest as the Highfalutins, and we are also on SoundCloud as highfalutin-skibon. 
So thank you guys again for listening and we will see you guys next week. Stay high, stay fluting. See you.